Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Ari Shadadi, General Counsel of Tumblr. Ari is a leader in the technology area, is a computer scientist himself, and will bring great insights on the GC's role in the high-tech field. Ari's also thrived through a potentially traumatizing corporate event, selling your company and continuing on as GC of an independent subsidiary of a larger entity events that often are freighted with concern. Ari, welcome to In-House Legal. Thank you, Randy. Happy to be here. So it's wonderful to have you. Uh, Ari is in Silicon Alley, not the Silicon Valley. So we'll get into the differences, hopefully, at some point on those two things. But Ari, when we start, why don't you give us an indication of what Tumblr does? Uh, I think many people know, but some folks of the older generation may be a little bit confused or unclear. Well, you know, I think we're actually confused sometimes even now, uh, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the, the history. So the site was launched February 2007 by our founder, David Karp, and really launched as a, as a pet project for him to uh, have a place to post all the media that he wanted to post without, um, you know, the tyranny of the big blank box that most blog sites had. So ostensibly, the, the point was a publishing tool for him to make it really easy for him to, to publish out to the world, you know, lower cognitive overhead uh, and the ability to post photos and, and music and video and, and, you know, without the limits that most blogging platforms had. So he launched this thing totally as a pet project. Uh, he was a, a web developer at the time doing consulting work for a variety of companies here in the city. And then the thing took off. Uh, a bunch of designers and, and developers, friends of his, began using it, uh, began sharing their blog URLs among each other, and then he attracted the attention of uh, Unisquare Ventures, which is actually down the street from our office, uh, one of the great VC firms here in New York, um, and Spark Capital in Boston, um, both also early investors in Twitter, and they funded the seed round, which created Tumblr Inc. in September of 2007. And since then, the, the site and the business have, have cha- stayed the same, but also changed. You know, starting out as, as what we called uh, early on the easiest way to blog, and now we, we view ourselves more as a media network for people to uh, create and consume the creations of others, um, particularly on mobile, the consumption experience is great. Um, and the business is selling native advertising inside of that consumption experience. Um, so similar to how Facebook and Twitter uh, make money with advertising. It's a fascinating thing, and it's it's amazing that uh, these publishing platforms uh, are being created every day, and the great ones uh, are, really contribute to the way society works now. And that's a critical item that's different for many people to understand, particularly in the legal profession and in general counsel's offices, how much uh, publishing sites social media generally controls uh, the way we behave in the public arena. 
Have you found that to be a significant issue for, for Tumblr guarding that aspect of the, of the public arena? Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question. I mean, you know, when I started here over four years ago, uh, I had to get my hands around the nest of, of legal issues and also understand, you know, what the user behavior was that was, that was driving all the things that were happening. Fast forward four years, I think you're, you're absolutely right that sites like ours are really part of the fabric of people's lives now. And they all serve different purposes, interestingly. I mean, I, I think you can think of Facebook as the white pages of the internet, you know, a place where you connect with people that you know in real life. Twitter, for me, is a place where I get my news. Uh, it's a source of real-time news information. I follow a lot of reporters and journalists. You know, for people who aren't me because I don't understand how to use it, Snapchat is a great way to, to communicate with your friends. And so we sort of fit in a, in a niche where, um, you know, if you don't necessarily want to be tied to your real life identity, but you want to follow the things that really interest you. So if you like cycling or art, but those aren't necessarily related to your, your like name, your, your personal persona out in the world um, that you would find on Facebook. But, but I, I do think that all of these sites, uh, including ours to some extent, are, are sort of part of the social fabric now. And there's some norms that have, that have come up around that uh, in terms of people's behavior that are, that are interesting and also have had an impact on how I do my job, obviously. Obviously. So, Ari, let's step back a second. You, you said you came to Tumblr in 2011. Let's go back a little bit further than that. You're uh, MIT grad in the computer sciences, both on the bachelor, on the gradu- undergraduate level and the graduate level. What led you out of computer science into the law? That is a, that's a great question, and I ask myself uh, at least once a week because sometimes it's not clear. So it, I went to MIT, and I, I thought I wanted to be a physicist um, and, and soon found myself gravitating toward computers and, and software development um, and had a really wonderful five years learning all that and, and did my master's thesis um, on a small sliver of artificial intelligence, and so I'm always interested in, in all the doom and gloom talk we hear now about, uh, you know, AIs are going to, like, supplant humanity, which seems to be a popular topic of conversation these days. I also graduated in the middle of the tech apocalypse, uh, so in 2003, and it was terribly hard for me and my peers to find a job, and um, lucky for us, Oracle Corporation came and, and hoovered up a bunch of us, so, I, you know, I'd say, like, 15 of us, um, in my year and, and the year ahead of me, uh, ended up going to Oracle. And so I was a software developer there for, for a few months, and I, I just I was not really that into it. Um, and actually, I think most of those 15 people were gone within a year. So maybe it had more to do with uh, Oracle than it did with being a software developer. But I had a dear friend who was in law school, also had gone to MIT, and she told me that... Um, law firms were hiring for people to, for engineers to work on patent-related things. Um, and at the time, I had a more positive view of the patent system than I have now. And so sent out, I, I think, if I remember correctly, about 100 resumes saying, hey, I'm an engineer. Um, you know, if you have anything interesting for me to do, let me know. Uh, maybe got five phone calls back and two or three actual interviews. Um, and one of them turned into a job working in patent litigation which is not a job I think that really exists for most engineers. I mean, I, I think a handful of firms now even do it, but certainly back then I didn't know anyone else who was, who was doing it. Um, and so went to Fish and Richardson in Boston. Um, that's the, that was the other thing. I'm, I'm an East Coast guy, so moving back to the East Coast was, was, was a nice thing. And began working in patent litigation with no law degree, no legal background, 
learning it from the bottom up as an apprentice, essentially. So, you know, writing letters, doing document review. Uh, obviously, I couldn't sign anything because I wasn't an actual lawyer, but uh, was substantively doing that kind of work. Uh, and then decided, you know, hey, this is fun, like doing it. Uh, why don't I go to law school? So decided to go to Harvard and continue working. So that was the the big thing for me was not having a lot of debt because <laughs> I'd already been in debt from uh, undergrad and grad school, and so you know didn't do any extracurriculars in law school, didn't have a ton of friends in law school, but uh, worked my way through and ended up going back to Fish and Richardson for another couple of years, including a trial in the case that I had worked on for six years, uh, which. We lost horribly, but got flipped on Jamal and then got flipped again at the Federal Circuit. And that kind of convinced me that litigation was not the thing for me. And so what I ended up doing was coming to New York, demoting myself from, uh, I think at the time I was a fourth or fifth year litigation associate to a first year corporate associate and began working here at Gunderson Detmer, uh, learning corporate transactional law. Um, and then from there, stumbled forward on my face and, and got my job here at Tumblr. So I've, I've had several different careers, I think, uh, over the past decade, which has been a lot of fun. Well, it seems that you're a classic example of uh, taking what some people would call risks and turning them into opportunities, because you were only at Gunderson Detmer for what, for a, a little over a year before you came to, or, to Tumblr? Less than a year. I Less think it was year. 10 months. Uh, and months. So, <laughs> you know, to go from first-year associate to general counsel of Tumblr is, uh, is quite a leap. I think it's a great reward for taking the risk that you took and sort of teaches people, I think, the importance of taking a few risks with their, uh, with their employment to, to try to figure out what they're going to be happiest in. So let me ask you this. So you go to Tumblr. Uh, you're there for a couple of years, and there's a seminal event. You know, Tumblr's purchased by Yahoo. What's the, how, did that, how did that happen to the extent you can tell us? And how did you navigate the internal aspects of selling your company, uh, which many people are going to regard as a, a frightening and highly concerning event? Well, I, there's an inside story that unfortunately I, I can't tell, which I would love to, but you got to get a few drinks in me, I guess. Um, okay. but, but really, the crux of it was our founder, David, uh, building a relationship with Marissa Meyer, who had, had taken an interest in the company and what we were doing. And, and he felt really good about continuing to work with her and the possible uh, you know, synergies and advantages of working with Yahoo as a larger company as opposed to going it on our own. You know, at the time, we had launched our first ad product just a few months before. Sorry, we had launched our first ad product a year before, uh, but then the next iteration of our of our ad products, sort of the core of what our business is now, which is the the native sponsored post, was launched uh, a few months before, and and we were finding, you know, like we don't have this expertise uh, to really scale this ad business um, on the tech side, in particular, a number of synergies working with a larger company, and so really based on those atmospherics and David's relationship with Marissa, he he felt comfortable moving forward with the transaction. From my perspective. You know, I was comfortable with it because David was comfortable with it, and, and uh, you know, I, I trust him. He's he's at times a better lawyer than I am, and he's he's probably better at everything than most people at times. And so, really, at, at that point, and it was it was such a frantic thing because I think the the whole thing front to back took six weeks. So if you think about a billion dollar acquisition that takes six weeks, the the timing pressure is crazy. So I didn't have a lot of time to reflect. Uh, there was a lot more just running forward working with the Yahoo team on diligence 
in particular, hammering out the, the finer points of the deal. That was my first M&A transaction, so uh, a lot of learning on my feet and also uh, sage guidance from uh, our outside counsel at Gunderson, Ward Breeze, and our, our investment bankers at Catalyst. Um, so it, we, we had a, a nice village of people helping us out. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a blur because the whole thing went so quickly, um, but was a, a great positive process. And uh, you know, we started as part of Yahoo in, in June of 2013. And it sounds like many of the senior folks uh, who were at Tumblr uh, were also comfortable with the with the move because of the CEO's approach. And I guess that many of them are still there. Or it's, it's, it sounds like it's a very independent subsidiary of, of Yahoo, uh, and it really does much of the stuff you know, it does sound like many of the items that you, you did before changed much when you merged with your larger parent. I would say some things definitely changed, but from, at least from the perspective of, of my role, the only thing that changed was that rather than hiring outside counsel, I now have continued to sort of use Yahoo's legal department as outside counsel on a lot of things. And that's been a, a wonderful relationship because, uh, you know, they feel like they know what's going on and, and they feel involved and their legal team learns about our product and, and our business and, and how we do things. And then obviously, like, I don't have to spend money on outside counsel. So I think prob- I have like one or two outside counsel left uh, in very sort of narrow subject matter areas and, and have not had to do the much of the expense management that I had to do the two years prior. So it's, it's been a, in that sense, it's actually been a very different, uh, still positive, but, but very different job. I can't imagine you overly miss dealing with outside counsel just as a slice of your day. Uh, it's, you know, there's some benefits, but there's certainly, it's a, it can be, a, it can be trying at times to, uh, to have to deal with them. One of the things that I, I loved about uh, the first two years was the, the journey that I went on to find the right outside counsel for the company. And then when I did, it actually was a pleasure to, to work with them. And, and also, like, I never had to deal with people that I thought were scamming me on bills because I had gone through such a long journey to find the right people. You know, my, my approach was rather than to have one or two firms that I sort of gave most of the work to, to find really great specialists that I got along with, that got along with other people in the company that they would have to work with. And so I had a halo of, of, you know, at any one moment between five to 10 specialist firms working in, in different areas, like a real estate person, copyright person, and in that sense, these people were all mentors to me, and, and I learned a lot from them. So I, I did not have the usual painful experience that most in-house counsel do of, of dealing with, with outside counsel and having to scrutinize bills and things like that. Well, that's, uh, it sounds like you've worked that out really well. What's in your bailiwick now? Were subject areas ceded to Yahoo, or are all the sort of usual subject areas still in your bailiwick, the difference only being that, that you have, you know, your outside counsel is now mostly uh, in-house lawyers at Yahoo? So from a legal perspective, anything that touches Tumblr, I'm still, uh, as, as one of the Yahoo lawyers I work with says, captain of the ship, and they provide appropriate advice. There, there are few areas where uh, you know, I feel that uh, their judgment should override in those are areas that, that are of sort of paramount risk importance to Yahoo. But, but in most cases, I, I'm still the final decision maker, and I still report to David rather than into Yahoo's legal department. But the, the nice thing is that over time, and this is not a result of the acquisition, it's just, you know, you're, you're in the same company for long enough. I have other completely not related to legal areas that I also oversee. So I have our community management team and our trust and safety team 
in the aggregate, those two teams are the ones that interact directly with our users on a daily basis. So the trust and safety team receives all inbound uh, complaints about things that are happening on the site. Um, and our community management team does all the support functions for our users and also uh, a lot of proactive outreach on, on issues and communication about new features um, and things like that. So those teams together are about 30 people. Um, and then I have our public policy function, which you know, for, for the past three years has been uh, nascent but super important, uh, particularly to David and to me, but, but also to our community, um, where we will go out and, and actually do forward-facing advocacy on particular issues that, that we think are important to the community and, and try to represent uh, their voice out in the world. So the, the legal stuff has been great. Actually, I have the most fun doing the other things. Uh, which has been a fun part of the evolution of the job. Yeah, that's frequently the case. Ari, let me take a minute and uh, we'll go for a short break. This is normally the time in our show when we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for you. In-house legal is seeking sponsorship. If you are interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on advertise. Welcome back to In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're with Ari Shadadi, the general counsel of Tumblr. We've been talking about uh, Ari's journey from MIT to Tumblr uh, now let's, Ari, if we can, let's turn a little bit to some of the particular legal issues that you find, uh, and non-legal issues, as you noted, some of that stuff is more fun, that you found at Tumblr. So it's essentially a digital publishing site. You know, I take it that that brings with it some of the usual content, digital content related issues like uh, piracy and copyright and those sort of items. Have those been uh, from a sort of day-to-day -day legal perspective or do those take up a significant amount of your time and how do you handle them? Yeah, so uh, I, I think you've identified the, the crux of the issues that at least early on I had to really uh, get my head, my head around. So Tumblr ultimately is a user-generated content site. We're an intermediary for, for our users to publish things all over the world. And so there are certain core content regulations for UGC sites that you have to make sure you are very scrupulously following. And then uh, on top of that, there are just the normal site policy issues. You know, what are the norms that you are going to enforce um, in your network, regardless of, of the legal background? So the first one really that, that I focus on, and I still, you know, to this day focus on because it's so important, is copyright. So we are bound by the uh, safe harbor provisions of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, and have a really stringent process for responding to those notices, providing information to rights holders and users um, under the law, and then allowing users to counter notify should they wish. And, and having that, building that system and making sure that system runs well uh, has been a big part of my job and, and continues to be from an oversight perspective. So now our Trust and Safety team, which is one of my teams, does the day-to-day -day processing of those notices. And actually, hopefully next week or the week after, we'll be publishing our first copyright and trademark transparency report, which will finally give everyone the, some of the numbers behind that for, for the past six months. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, but we just didn't have the, the data collection ability until this year. But that has been, that's been a key thing. I think you know, the other two 
areas that are important to, to think about. One is CDA 230. So in the mid-90s, the Communication Decency Act was passed, and it has a provision that allows intermediaries like Tumblr to essentially enforce their policies without worry of gaining first-party legal liability for picking and choosing between content. And so a lot of the claims that you might think that we could have levied against us, for example, defamation is sort of the, the canonical example. Like if you feel like one of our users has posted something defaming you, we, Tumblr, actually have immunity from liability. And it's a strong immunity. I think it's, it's one of the, the smartest laws for platforms that Congress has, has passed intentionally or not, which means that we don't get frivolous lawsuits from, from people. They actually have to go after the, the user um, in particular, and there's plenty of mechanisms for them to do that. Uh, and then trademark, which is a, a much, I would say, murkier area. Um, there is no notice and takedown regime in trademark law in the U.S., and so all platforms have to, to deal with it in, in a bit of a more fuzzy way. Um, but I would say that that's the area where we see the most most abusive notices where people are trying to stifle speech uh, with with weak or bogus trademark claims. And then other than that, you know, we, we deal with all the typical site policy issues. I think we've we've done a, a we've had an effort for several years, for example, to uh, tamp down on self harm content, which is something that that among teenagers online is is a big issue. On the other end of it, we're we're now in the middle of talking to government agencies about uh, terrorist content. Um, so the UK in particular is very concerned about content that advocates in favor of uh, terrorist organizations or, or organizations like ISIS. And so we are in the middle of that debate, not, not only with those government agencies, but also with ourselves and, and with other platforms like us to figure out uh, what we should be doing to balance uh, freedom of political speech with um, the concerns of, of these governments that, that don't want this content out there. But I take it that something like an ISIS, a horrific beheading video would, would find no place on a Tumblr platform. Absolutely not. And, and actually, we're fortunate that we've had a policy uh, against gore in general for the entire time that I've been here. And so, so those videos immediately get removed. I think the class of things that, that we may have a disagreement on with these government agencies, particularly in the UK, you know, I have, to, I have to dig up some examples, but there are these sort of like, I mean, literally it's anime characters saying how great the Islamic State is uh, and, and talking about all the good things they do. And there's, there are no incitements to violence, uh, no recruiting efforts, it's just propaganda. And so from our point of view, when we view these, these tend to look like core political speech rather than you know, incitement to violence or, or recruiting efforts or things like that. And so uh, that, that's the place where I think we, we're trying to find a balance between, uh, you know, the interests of uh, governments in, in sort of tamping the speech down and, and at the same time, like, what, what the essence of core political speech is. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. Let me ask, do you have human beings? I mean, you must get a huge torrent of data every day. Do you have human beings that do this? Have you been able to mechanize that to some, to some respect for all these issues, for the copyright issues, for the, the political speech issues, or the gore issues? Are, are these done by humans or by machines? It's a great question. So, so we've taken an approach that I think is, is somewhat unique in our little industry, which is that I don't feel comfortable having machines do any of these things automatically. There's so much nuance and so many edge cases that, you know, I think and you see it all the time on other platforms where automated takedowns will occur and, and they'll take down something that clearly they shouldn't have taken down. And so we have 
humans looking at everything, but, but you know, I, we can call them cyborgs to some extent because what we do is we arm them with really powerful tools to enhance their ability to do things quickly uh, with the accuracy of a human being and the thoughtfulness and care of a human being, but to be able to do it super efficiently. And so compared to, to industry benchmarks that I've seen, our team is twice as efficient on a per agent basis. So if you count a number of, we, we call them tickets, you know, requests that come in, you know, my team on a per agent basis processes twice as much as, as the average team in their space. And I really attribute that, one, to, to good training. You know, I can pat myself on the back all I want, but really we've, we've done a good job of, of giving them the right tools for the job to, to do the work quickly and also to be thoughtful about it and make sure the interests of our users are represented, not just the people who are writing in to get stuff taken down. So, you know, it's interesting, this this whole takedown and other uh, copyright issues has taken a number of turns with some of the bigger players. We had Mike Frickless, the general counsel of Viacom, on earlier, uh, and uh, we went over the Viacom versus YouTube slash Google fight. Uh, now I saw that YouTube is complaining about Facebook for its, I believe it's Facebook, for its its use of content. So uh, do you, how do you think this is going to end? Do you think there's going to be much development in the law or is this just corporate, is this just competitive sniping at this point about uh, you're using my materials and, and you shouldn't type stuff? Well, you know, I think we're, we're converging. I'm, I'm, I'm generally an optimist, although uh, maybe sometimes people inside Tumblr wouldn't think so because I have to say no to things sometimes. Uh, I, I think we're converging on a good place. You know, Viacom, we're great friends with Viacom you know, have a really positive working relationship with them and care dearly about rights holders. You know, David's focus has always been on creators. So we don't want any of the copyright infringement activities that are happening any more than uh, the rights holders do. And we continue to work with them to, to make sure that, that anything that they don't want on the site is taken down very quickly. And I think every legitimate actor in, on the platform side feels the same way and wants to do the same thing. And I think you're seeing that, that since the Viacom v. YouTube lawsuit, you're not getting these big disputes among, you know, platforms and rights holders. At the same time, you know, I think there are efforts from the movie studios and, and the record labels to, to have more comprehensive things happen. I mean, we, we actually just filed an amicus brief in the MovieTube case, the details of which uh, somewhat escaped me, but, but the key point is that uh, there's an order that purports to bind the Tumblr, Flickr, several other platforms to make sure certain content is taken down without actually us being parties to the case. So, so things like that do happen. At the same time, I, my understanding and my feeling is that they're focused on these, these sort of havens for piracy, and we just want to make sure there are no unintended consequences for, for those of us who really are, are doing the right thing in the efforts that, that, that they're pushing forward in the courts. Um, you, you know, I don't think legislative efforts like SOPA PIPA are, are going to come back, although you know, I could be wrong. But I think we're doing a really good job of, of limiting the problem and, and converging on a place where everyone's generally happy. Um, at least I hope so, but uh, you know, we'll have a, a few fires here and there. But on the main, I think we're, we're, we're in a fairly good place. Certainly we feel like we're in a good place here. Um, and, and when I talk to, to people at, at the other platforms, I, I think generally they feel the same way. The Facebook YouTube issue is an interesting one because uh, my understanding is that what people, what, what's happening is that users actually are taking uh, what they would normally embed as a YouTube embed and then like re-uploading it to, to Facebook and then therefore the YouTube creator 
uh, doesn't get the credit. And, and to the extent that happens with us, we will, we will sort of take the re-uploaded thing down entirely. And so the, the complaints with Facebook, I think, are, are related to sort of how they've designed their product rather than purely legal ones. But, you know, I, I assume the Facebook guys will resolve that. They're, they're very thoughtful about things like this. And I'm hoping that doesn't turn into a bigger issue. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting from a uh, turnabout fair play sort of uh, concept. So let me ask you this. You're developing these public, essentially these public policy issues that play out across your product. Uh, how do you as the general counsel and the person who's, you know, dealing with so many of these public policy issues, how do you, how does the discussion take place within, within Tumblr? Do you lead it? Do you, do one of the business folks lead it? Do they see it as a, what's, you know, what, what's this going to do to my ad revenue sort of aspect? Or is it, how, how does it play out in Tumblr to get these decisions made? Most of the big things that we've been involved in originate with me and my team. So I, I think if I were to put a mission statement on, on what my teams do as a whole, it's to advocate for and defend our users. So we, we try to do the best we can to identify the things that are worrying them now, and, and those are things that they talking talk about on the site, or issues that we see coming that may have an impact on, on them. And our users, you know, we, we focus particularly on entrepreneurs, inventors, creators, the people for whom David built the site in the first place. So when we identify one of these issues, you know, we try to get a pulse on how we can get our users involved. And, and so everything that we've done has been, to some extent, we'll, we'll, we'll find a position and, and what we think is the right thing to do, and, and we will advocate for that. But we also will give our users a way for them to express how they feel if they, if they want to. And so what tends to happen internally is, like, I will talk to David about that. Um, we'll surface that to our leadership team, although ultimately, really, these issues also come from, from David himself and how much he cares. I, I can't tell you how important it is for a founder and CEO to be engaged uh, to enable us to do all these wonderful things that I think we've been able to do. Um, certainly without his support, we wouldn't have been able to do those. And then once David's on board and, and he thinks it's the right thing to do, we'll, we'll sort of talk to the, the leadership team about it. But, uh, you know, the, doing the right thing from our perspective has always overrided commercial concerns. So, you know, we've, we've done the two big things we've done a lot around have been uh, SOPA PIPA back when that was an issue and then net neutrality last year. In both cases, commercial concerns uh, were absolutely raised. In both cases, we decided to move forward in spite of what the risk profile may be there because we felt like it was the right thing to do and, and hope that people would understand that we were sort of moving with our conscience rather than our, our business minds. Uh, and, and I think people did. Well, you've been inordinately successful, I think, in both aspects. You and I have discussed uh, net neutrality in detail uh, in other instances. I won't, we don't have time, unfortunately, today to, to go over uh, that fertile ground, but uh, maybe we'll do so in another half hour. But Ari, I want to thank you very much for spending time with me today on In-House Legal. It's been a great and informative half hour, and I very much appreciate you taking the time to do it. Thank you, Randy. Really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For all of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. This brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.